And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, the Deputy Director of High Performance West, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. John, welcome. We're back, baby. Giving the people what they want. See, what do the people want? Do you know? Uh, you know, I, I know what the people need. Okay, what do they need, then? They need... Final Surge. What is Final Surge? Well, it's And why a, do they need it? What is it and why do they need it? Well, I'll tell you why they need it. Because I use it. That should be good enough, right? And what do I use it for? I use it for my online tracking of training, coaching, writing training plans, everything possible in that regard. It allows me to keep up to date with all of my athletes. I was just going through um, the well, probably 40-plus athletes that I coach this weekend online, seeing all their training in one place, able to adjust their summer training plans for my uh, college kids on the fly as I saw what they rated things and what comments they left. And it has a nice little message board for them all to interact and for me to post articles and other things that I want them to read um, to enhance our team cohesion. So, Final Surge is a great platform for not only recording and logging your training, but also for coaches to use to, you know, plan out and uh, deliver the training. And you know what? Just for us, Final Surge is giving our wonderful listeners a discount. If you go to finalsurge.com slash on coaching and then enter the passcode or the yeah, the passcode on coaching, uh, the discount code, and you'll get 15% off, which is an amazing deal to make your life easier. Boom. That's what the people want. Final Surge, High Performance West, On Coaching Podcast, coming all together to give the people not only what they want, but what they need. That is true. It's what they need. And it allows us <laughs> to continue to do these great things. So please... Uh, if you're interested, check it out. If you have any questions, just hit me up on uh, social media, Twitter, etc., and I'll be happy to answer them. So, delving into our podcast topic for the day, what in the world are we talking about, John? Well, if we went back in time with the knowledge and experience we had now, how would we coach in the high school level different and or the same as opposed to when we first started out. Because Steve and I both, you know, as a quick um, history lesson, Steve and I both started off as high school coaches. And I think that's where the most important work is being done in the coaching field in America today. Because that is where you capture the hearts and minds of young athletes and individuals and make them lifelong fans of the sport, lifelong participants of the sport, and potentially the next, you know, uh, champion at the SA world, national, or Olympic levels. So the high school coach's job, to me, I've always felt is the most important. And I've always, you know, had a siren's call luring me back. I just haven't, you know, um, taken the advantage of that or taken the siren up on her offer, so to speak. But I was thinking about this the other day is if Steve and I, you know, I'd be, I'm actually curious to hear Steve's thoughts too. You know, if we went back to that level and coach now, having gone through the college, post-collegiate uh, levels of coaching, what might we do different and what 
principles or what things will we stick to? So that's kind of the very broad sweeping topic for today's podcast. I would change absolutely nothing. We are now done with the podcast. <laughs> Shortest just... podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a very um very I think profound statement there that high school coaches are at the uh, at the forefront. And I think that's not not only true in terms of uh setting up athletes habits and you know making them lifelong runners and fans but i also think it's true that a lot of times like innovation happens at the high school level because you have more freedom to explore as well and and sometimes out of necessity i mean a lot of my problem solving when i was a high school coach was simply due to lack of facilities you know we either lacked a a, a all-purpose track we lacked a functional weight room like we lacked so much to the high school setting um where i worked at because it was kind of inner city, you know, and just didn't have all the amenities and didn't have all the latest gadget gizmos um, and equipment that you would like to see. And so by necessity, we figured out creative solutions to training problems to help those young athletes be the best they could be. Yeah, it's really the constraints, right? And it was the same whether when I was in high school or coaching, um, is those constraints lead to innovation. And a lot of times, once you have the world at your fingertips, or um, all the gadgets and gizmos and resources you could ask for, um, you stop innovating because you don't have to. And sometimes those constraints lead us to uh, better solutions or, you know, new ways to doing something um, that we ordinarily would never stumble upon. Yeah, I mean, I can't, um, you know, say enough how thankful I was to start off as a high school coach. And it really set the foundation for my current worldview of coaching and my practice of coaching as it stands today and as it's evolved because it really gave me the confidence that I could co-create solutions with athletes in the moment or week to week or even day to day based on the environment that we were in to get the best possible stimulus, the best possible training um, it, um, stimulus, and also the best possible adaptation outcome for that athlete or for that team because this is who we are and what we did. And I think if I had to think back to my focus as a young high school coach was very eager and ambitious. So I was searching a lot for achievement, for results, for something to hang my hat on. And, you know, I probably did a little bit of a disservice to the athletes I work with being too, you know, result or too contest oriented rather than being culturally attuned or process attuned um, comparative to where I am today. Because, you know, you, you wanted you want these athletes to achieve because you can feel like, Oh man, there's a lot on the line. Like for them, there's potential scholarships or like, you know, getting on college teams or getting into colleges, you know, with uh, athletics as an avenue for them to stand out. And so, you know, you kind of can push, 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 push relentlessly, or you're in a program that has a culture and a tradition of success or victories or what have you. And you want to continue to um, that trend. But I think if I had to go back and start coaching today, I'd step back and the first thing I would do would, would be address the culture that I would be operating in or coming into. And instead of creating, like, say, you know, slick little mantras or mission statements, instead create pillars or principles 
as our guiding ethos and use those things to help color decision-making, whether it's decision-making from a competitive or health and well-being standpoint of the athlete, all the way throughout um, a season and you know uh, throughout a year. So that's the, really the most important thing. I think pillars or principles, um, there's a great book by Ray Diallo of um, – what's the hedge fund's name, but one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. And he Bridgewater. talks really a lot about he, Bridgewater. Thank you, Steve. Yep. And, you know, Ray talks a lot about principles and curating them, crafting them and defining them because principles are what's going to guide you because they're what you come back to in the, the space you come to, to make decisions in hard times. And you're never going to not run into hard times. You're never going to escape chaos. You're never going to, you know, uh, not see, uh, deal with failure and defeat so what's going to help you be resilient and springboard from that it's the principles that you craft and create and i think any team whether it's a high school team a college team or even a cohort of uh, post collegiates or professionals have that are really successful year in and year out typically have very strong principles that everyone's bought into and everyone understands yeah yeah i think that when you're you know, when you're first getting into coaching, you you almost like discount that stuff because it's the soft stuff. So I was oh, there's no accounting of it. I mean, that's yeah. the hardest part, right? Like training plans are easy, managers are easy, holding a stopwatch, you know, recording splits is easy because you can account. There's precision. Principles, unfortunately, th- it lacks that precision. I think that turns us away because it's scary because you don't know if there's a exactly right or wrong answer. You can't you know, create that definitive, uh, definitive, uh, outlook that you can with the hard calculus of numbers. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you're young and as a coach, you, you tend towards the definitive, right? You tend towards the measurable. So, you know, similar, if I was to look back, I think our culture in those years that I helped out in high school was really good, but I think it happened almost by happenstance, right? It almost happened by like, hey, I was still training. I was still running. I'm still putting in a lot of work. Like, I'm going to be motivated for you guys. And like, you get the top couple athletes hooked up and then it just kind of takes care of itself almost. And that was like the process behind it. And it, it, we almost like lucked into it. Right. Um, and I think if I was to go back and look at it, A, I think it's different when, you're creating a uh, a culture when you're kind of part of it in the sense that you can still train and run with them and influence them on that way versus when you're, you know, on the outside looking in and, and have a more distant connection to um, to those athletes and, and all that kind of stuff. Because when I started high school coaching, I was like 22 years old, right? So that, yeah, well, there's a big difference too between being an assistant coach and then yeah. being a director or a head coach. Like there's a lot of different concerns there as well. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent, hundred percent. So, you know, I think that's, that's almost the lesson of all coaching though, as you get into it is like the things that you thought mattered the most at the time, which was the um, obsession over the details of the training plan. Uh, don't, I mean, they're still important, but they don't necessarily make or break you. Um, they're not necessarily the, the most important, um, in the global picture of things, you know? No, like, I mean, 
there's so many different ways to train. There's so many different methods. Like you can, you know, have these different foundations or these uh, methodologies you favor, and you see them all be successful at every level, year in and year out to this date, right? So you can't say I have the best workouts. That's pure hubris. But I think there's certain cultural elements that are consistent across any championship organization or team. You know, and uh, we were um, just talking about uh, last night, Steve and I and Danny Mackey, um, what Tony Parker's uh, article that he recently put out about his farewell to the Spurs organizations that he's been with for, I believe, 17 years. And, you know, there's this uh, aura around the Spurs organization and the NBA basketball as a championship-minded um, outfit. And, you know, he, he tried to put a pin in really what it was. And so what I read into it was a lot of servant leadership in terms of, you know, the coach, Greg Popovich, or even the stars, David Robinson, Tim Duncan, et cetera. They were servant leaders. And what servant leadership means is that you don't lead from the front with a look at me, ego, how many likes did I get? But you lead in the middle, you lead with side by side with people. So what that means is you're just as coachable as anyone on the team. You're willing, you know, those stars or those leaders are willing to take critique and feedback to help them help their game get better. And as a coach, same deal. But you're also consistent. You know, you're steady, you're disciplined. You, you know, see the bigger picture about what really, what's the game you're really playing? Because the game, you know, the finite game that one can play is who can get to the finish line first, race to race. But the infinite game, the bigger game that we're playing is the game of achievement, the game of camaraderie, the game of building up young men and women's self-esteem. Those things really matter a lot more um, at the high school level now that I have some experience and perspective than I gave credit to when I was younger as well because I was so much achievement-based. So I think, you know, if that Tony Parker, you know, art reflection really stuck a pin in anything, was it for me was that there was this sense of equality in that not everyone was just inherently equal and, you know, that no one was better or worse than anyone. No, there was definitely a hierarchy of skill and talent. But the equality was equality of purpose. Why are we all here? What are we co-creating together as an organization and that was always clear and top of mind and because of that you create a nucleus of family this sense of belonging and being there where people had each other's back towards what they were searching for which was being a championship organization which to them is manifest as being the best version of themselves day in day out as they could together and that together part's key key so let let me take a break and read a small paragraph or two short paragraphs from that piece because i think it's important yeah. uh, for understanding this so again this is tony parker piece we'll put the link in the show notes um on high performance plus to come here it is and i quote because here's the thing with tim duncan was he the greatest player of all time i don't know he's the greatest player i ever played with i'll say that and i'll let the experts take it from there but here's one thing I'll tell you absolutely. Timmy was the most coachable great player of all time. That was always our secret weapon to me. You see this all-world player, this all-NBA first team, MVP of the finals, about to be MVP of the league guy. And here he is in practice, willing to be coached like he's fighting for a spot on the team. It was unreal. And if you think that's too passive for a star player to be, well... 
then you're not thinking it through on Tim's level because Tim knew the truth, which was that to let himself be coached in this way, you know, that's true charisma and that's true swagger. It's like he was challenging everyone else in our, our gym. The best player in the entire league is willing to put his ego aside for the good of the team. Are you? And I think, again, I suggest reading the whole thing, but I think that kind of sums up um, or, or gives a great picture of the culture in terms of the way the Spurs, um, you know, developed it. But I think it's also an important piece of it, an important, um, you know, peek behind the window in the terms of you see that a lot of times you think like, oh, culture, top down coach created. But what you see here is it was likely created. And if you read the rest of the article, it was a combination of being created by, yeah, the coach Popovich, um, but also the star Tim Duncan and getting on the same page and and it being like this team wide kind of, you know, thing that developed. And I think that's why they were able to bring so many different people into the culture and kind of ingratiate them into it because like they set this among various levels. And I think if you look at going back to high school coaching and we're talking about creating culture, I think that is the key right there is it's not something that I come in and say, Hey, here are the principles we stand for. Here are the rules we have. Like, here's what we value. Like if you just dictate it from the top, um, and then the, the athletes have no ownership in that, then you're not creating culture. You're trying to dictate laws or rules, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's becomes a police state. Yes, exactly. And if that happens, like, then everything that is good with culture doesn't come with it, right? Because then it's then the decision making is different. Then the motivation is different because they're not doing it because it's something that they choose or want to or or have decided they have value in. It's something coming from this police state, like, you know, dictatorship coming down with it. And I think that's Well, what- culture is like best when people screw up. It's best expressed when people screw up or fail, right? Because you you as a coach can then, you know, take Timmy or Susan in into the office or aside and say, Hey, you know, did you feel like what you said or what you did or how you acted, did you feel like that was aligned with, you know, the principles that we're trying to express here? And then they can answer yes or no. And then you can say, look, you're not in trouble, but what we're trying to do is teach you and create an environment to express these principles and those actions and those behaviors, whether, whatever they are, whether it's, you know, saying curse words or calling, you know, teammates you know bad names or acting out in school whatever it is it's always a teachable moment and that's the beautiful thing about culture at the high school level is you know coaches are teachers and you teach through these er moments of error you know the the principles and guiding elements that you want to infuse these young athletes with because they're going to mess it up there's no a there's no like get it right the first time situation here it's over and over and over again just call them out and just be like, hey, is that aligned with the, what we're trying to, you know, teach and express here? And then they can say yes or no. And they know they're smart. High school kids are real smart. But I think you have to call it out when it happens and when the error happens because that's going to create and reaffirm that you're one as a high school coach aware, seeing them, witnessing it, paying attention to it. And then two, not getting upset and being a police officer about it but calling it out and asking them the question if it if it if this is what aligns or not 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's those are the things that like you learn as a coach as you've spent more time and more experience, right? It's learning how to deal with these things and learning how uh, how to interact with other people and and how it how it portrays on the team, right? Um, if you look at, (laughs) if you look at my own coaching background, like there's been times when I've punished people. There's been times when I've, you know, semi ignored things and let it wash over. And every time that that happens, like you learn how a team reacts. And I think that's an incredibly valuable lesson too, as a coach is you're, you're not the creator of the culture. You're this guy trying to gently nudge and guide it in the right directions. Right. And everything you do, every message you send, like, well, everything you do is a message that athletes receive saying like, Oh, okay. This is acceptable in our culture. Like this is frowned upon. This is a, a good behavior. This is a poor behavior. And I think you just have to be aware of that, uh, especially at the high school age, um, where, you know, it's, uh, it's like that. And, you know, to give one more example, I was talking to my good friend and co-author of, uh, the book Peak Performance, Brad Stolberg. Um, and we were talking about raising, <laughs> raising a kid. And he was like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. You have to realize that your kid is watching you and everything you do is a message of what's acceptable to that kid, right? So if you're sitting there at dinner and you get bored and you pick up your phone and are staring at your phone uh, while you're at dinner, like the kid picks that message up and was like, oh, like dad is doing this. This is acceptable, you know? And well, all you're doing is mindlessly distracting yourself for some reason. And maybe you just, you know, draw into the phone and don't even think about it. But it's a mes- message of acceptability. So you're like crafting that of that almost home culture without even thinking about it. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it can seem overwhelming sometimes, but as long as you're aware of it, that's the critical thing, right? And just being aware of it, understanding how you're being, how you choose to be in the world is communicating the culture that you're contributing to, whether it be at a micro level within your family unit or at a meso level, maybe in your team or your organization, or even at a macro level to the world, right? How you're, how you elect to be in the world contributes to the culture. You know, and to that effect, one thing that I would also change too, if I went back to high school coaching is I wouldn't talk about winning. When having emphasis on winning, it wouldn't be about winning because it creates this, again, um, uh, binary, you win is good, you don't win is bad outlook. And that's not the case. I'd actually be more focused on speaking to competition and being competitive and leaning in towards the competitive moment versus worrying about the accolades, worrying about whether someone qualifies to stay. Those are all really big and important things and people have worked hard and they've done all this, but it's it's more about the competitive moment. So ripening and shaping athletes to be excited for the competitive moment, not to shy away from the competitive moment. And two, to get them to a space to recognize when the competitive moment is happening in a race and then being conscious enough to stay on task and then make good decisions that allow them to explore the competitive moment. And that, as a coach, you can give permission. You can set them, set the athletes up to say, look, when the competitive moment happens, let's explore it and let's see what you can do. And maybe you beat that person, maybe you don't. 
but you never know if you try. That's where that comes from. But if it's just all solely about the wins and the losses, I think, you know, you're going to do a disservice to your that athlete in the entire culture because you're saying this is what matters is, you know, beating this team, you know, getting to state. And that's all your value is as an individual. And that's the only reason you're here is to contribute to that versus saying, no, the reason we're here is so we can create an environment that affords you through racing to explore the competitive moment and see what you got. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, when we look at high school kids, it's almost like we're ingraining patterns, right? We're, we're getting them or moving them towards patterns and habits of thought. And having coached at the college level for a number of years and then having inherited post-collegiate professional athletes as well, I I think it's interesting because like we deal with when you're at the college or post-collegiate level, like you deal with ingrained habits of athletes, right? And this could be on a uh, micro level in terms of like they're used to a certain warm up and all this stuff, or it could be in terms of what their motivation is for competing. And, you know, I've had athletes who have come in who are solely motivated you know by external things in terms of like rewards and um you know and making sure the you know they place high and get this accolade and that and that doesn't that doesn't appear out of thin air and it could be their high school coach it could be their parent um but someone has you know has helped ingrain this pattern that this is valuable and this is what what it what you should be going after and i think when you're looking at high school athletes, especially in cross country and track, is that a lot of times is their first exposure to the sport, right? Not many people run cross country before they get to high school, or if they do, it's like some, you know, minuscule um, junior high program. So it's like their first real exposure of things. So when I look at, when I look at going back as a coach, I would think of, okay, Looking at this person holistically, what kind of patterns of thought and behavior behavior am I trying to ingrain? And then, you know, I think the other part of it, as I step back and reflect on the training side of things, maybe to switch gears slightly, is, you know, I'm not sure if I would tr- I would change a whole lot, except that. I would have um, a deeper understanding of what I'm trying to do with each athlete and mold that more towards like his aspirations. What does that mean? I, I think like when I was coaching in high school, like it was easy for me to get caught up in like the, all right, let's try and win state. Let's try and make Nike team nationals. Let's try and do this. Right. And you end up maybe pressing certain people's training more so or like trying to get trying to find that fifth man so you're pressing your potential fifth sixth seventh eighth whoever's training a little bit more and i think just stepping back and realizing um okay what what am i trying to set this athlete up for is this is 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 high school career the only time he's going to compete and then I'm just worried about ingraining, you know, getting them competitive, but then creating a habit of exercise and running and enjoying that. Or is this someone who's going to go on and compete at the collegiate level? What do I need to get, do to get them there? How do I need to set them up where he then has four years of, uh, you know, competitiveness and collegiate level and isn't burnt out on day one? 
college. And it's just like taking into consideration what the athlete uh, I'm, you know, sitting across from is trying to get out of the sport at that age. Oh, man, I would change everything from a training perspective. <laughs> I would day one, I teach him how to move. Like I'm totally in the Vern Gambetta Dan path camp on this. See, it's so it's one interlude here. See, you, you weren't as fortunate as me. So when Ryan, Ryan donor, and then he had two, two brothers, uh, Brad and Derek and uh, a couple other guys, Jeremy Warren was there too. Um, by the way, which you, for if you were in the high performance West scholar program, you would have seen some of their high school training. Um, so check that out. Brief ad. Um, but getting back to that. So those guys would be out at Burroughs Park, right? Uh, yep. which is where we would train. And, uh, every once in a while, old man Tom Telez would show up and do, <laughs> do, do running form clinics. So, you know, I didn't. You had a ringer, man. That's no fair. I didn't have to worry about that too you much. You had one of the greats. I just, the ringer come out to Burroughs and, you know, he'd, he'd work with all these kids who ever showed up and, that's uh that's what you did so you know i was just uh ahead of the game there for you john i uh yeah i called in the cavalry well i i think looking back right the athletes i worked with in high school and even in college and post-collegiate the people will find and had joy the most sustained and consistent success they end up always being the best movers too you know and so you hear that nowadays people want athletic you know, multi-sport athletes. We're trying to get away from specialization, right? And all the team sports and football coaches, you know, are looking for three sport athletes now instead of just football players year round. What does that mean? Well, it means that these people move in a variety of different planes and move really well to put themselves in a competitive position. And then two, just teaching athletes how to move because now we don't have as much PE as we did say 30 or even 40 years ago. I mean, that's a long time. So, how to position your appendages and limbs and how to, you know, contact the ground on foot strike, you know, how to use your arms in the running mechanic and motion. Those are incredibly important and impactful because if you don't teach that as a high school coach, I guarantee few, if any collegiate programs will teach that, you know, and I guarantee few, if any personal trainers or whatever coaches they might have after you will be a student enough to teach as well so it's almost like now more than ever you have to do a little due diligence but altus and Vern, with you know gain and the gain cast they've made it super easy to kind of get that education for a coach um but if you don't do it the probability is if you're going to subject them to lots of running whether it's volume and or intensity they're going to get hurt and they're going to get, in these high school kids are going to get this injury 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 cycle. And you don't want to do that to a high school kid because then they don't develop and they don't fund the sport and then they're out of it. But yeah, I like I would worry more so about like say my freshmen or any newcomers, even my JV athletes, teach them how to move. And maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, but teach them and just put them in environments, not just drill them statically but put them in learn by doing situations where they're learning how to move their appendages to create force, to create balance, to create stabilization, to create power. And all these good things are really radical or, um, or not radical. They sound radical because they, we're not talking about the metabolism, but they are impactful in matter because you can't train if you can't move well, because you'll continue getting this injury cycle. And the other thing would obviously, you know, you guys know me is, 
speed day one. I'd have them be sprinting because that, you know, uh, sandwiches and bookends nicely with that movement because you have to move very, very well at very high speed. So even if you're doing short sprints, whether they're safe and up a hill for 10 seconds, like, you know, the Canova, Brad Hudson popularized um, sprints for distance runners in a marathon or cross country cycle, or even if it's on the track doing fly 30s for speed reserve, I would introduce that component day one as well. Those are things that because I didn't have the education, because I didn't have the exposure and the comfortableness with them, I just ignored. And it was unfortunately to the majority of people I worked with detriment rather than assistance. And lo and behold, the athletes who moved really well, they survived the training, you know, the number of miles and, you know, workouts that I prescribed and et cetera. But the ones who didn't, always had issues. And I realized there was nothing inherently wrong with the training program from what we we're running in, from mileage or intensity. What was inherently the issue was the lack of movement quality some of these athletes um, came to practice or came to the team with. And that I, unfortunately, was not educated enough at the time to deal with appropriately to help enhance them. And that, I think, is, you know, whether it's you or you find you know, your ringer, like a Tom Telez type, <laughs> you know, like that's super critical. I would, those are like fundamentally the two things I'd change. There you go, man. Um, you know, we were lucky in, again, constraints. We had one park with one hill that was just long enough to sprint up. Of. So um, we did short hill sprints all the time in high school, probably so much that our kids got bored of it to death. Um but again, there's a great example of constraints lead you to do to do things, right? Um, yeah, you know, from the other training standpoint, I th I think the one thing that I would change slightly is we had this we had this ten mile course that was through uh, again kind of rolling hills for us in the Houston uh, world, and we do it would turn into just kind of ten miles as fast as you can go, right? Mm -hmm. And it was just like a historical thing that you know, the program had done for decades. I did it or for years. I did it as an athlete and ran like 54 minutes for 10 miles in high school on it. Uh, might've been a little faster. I don't remember, but it was like a, it was like a rite of passage and like everyone would try and do it, including the JV kids and all that stuff. Um, and what happened is it, it, it was great for that toughness, but it also like taught people how to, how to blow up and uh, not enjoy things a little bit because 10 miles is a long way to suffer. So I think I would modify again, looking at like the intensities and volumes of work a little bit. I, I think it, I would modify the, the volume of training of doing some of that more intense stuff, except for maybe like the top end, um, top end athletes. That's a good point. The other thing I would also do now that you're talking Steve is, um, I actually would have try to recruit more, go through the high school, you know, it, even if you're not coaching or teaching in the high school, but you're coaching, like being a little bit more present in the day to day, if you can, or at least sometime during the school day, I would have done a better job of trying to just connect with athletes away from practice because that element is critical. And I always feel like uh, coaches who teach in the building that they, uh, and the school they, they coach at have a leg up on a lot of, you know, maybe coaches who coach at a different um, school than they teach at or coaches who don't teach uh, during the school day. So 
finding some way to like recruit and not recruit to get the best talent, but recruit to give people exposure, recruit to give people an opportunity, recruit to, you know, see what someone's heart and mind can be captured with from sport. That I think is critical because now more than ever, sport's a good place for a young adult and a young adolescent to be felt like they're being actually seen and heard. And if you're not the the adult going in there and saying, hey, would you like to come and try this? Would you like to give this a shot? You know, would you like to come run? Like, would you like to come be a part of a team? I think now more than ever, people need to extend that arm and make that offer rather than solely just saying, oh, well, people who want to run will come out for the team or people who want to do track will come out for it. And I think that is super critical because you we uh, we never know what type of athlete is walking the halls. And I've seen it so many times with friends of mine who still coach at high school level today. They're like, oh, yeah, this guy came out senior year just because he wanted to do track and he ended up being, you know, top three at state in this one event off of one season. Right. Because these pe- these kids are walking around and they're they haven't been given the permission by an adult to explore this sport and opportunity and that's all they're really seeking is that permission that you know invitation so that to me that recruitment part i would do try to do a lot better job of that throughout the entirety of the year um, as a high school coach because i feel like it's so vital to be able to make that offer and give that gift to a young uh, male or female about being a part of the the team sport of track and field and cross country that is in the high school setting, but also having that individual ownership that those sports demand as well. Yeah, that's a really good point in that sense is that I think a lot of times, and this definitely happens at the college level is that we take, we take it for granted that someone at one time will have tried our sport and we know who the good people are. Right. And every once in a while, especially even at the later rounds, you get a late bloomer who shows up, tries something, and finds out they're good at it. And I think that's even more so at the high school level, obviously, when they're young, is you, you don't know the potential of people. So I think it's it's like a almost a numbers game of get as many people out as you can in terms of recruiting. Like give them a give them you know, a possibility to see where they're at. And that's what programs, great traditional high school programs like York High School, for instance, or the Woodlands High School in Texas have, have succeeded and done really well is they've had given athletes an opportunity or they've given kids an opportunity to explore running and see what, see if they're good or not. And a lot of times out of that, like you get a, you get someone who finds out they're really good who never, ever ran before. Yeah, and even if they're not really good, maybe you create a lifelong runner or you yeah. create a lifelong fan of the sport too. I think in this day and age where we talk about the health of the professional sport of track and field and running, you know, we, we need to continue to build up the the high school ranks because those are people who are familiar with it, who are going to be fans, who introduce their children and hopefully their children's children to the sport. So, you know, it. I always tell people you never know what per, what athlete or what connection you might make that might lead to something even better. You know, quick example is Rob Connor. You know, famously recruits very little international athletes and very little African athletes. I think he's had three Kenyans um, at UP in the 25 years he's been there. And the first one he um, recruited to University of Portland um, was just a total duck. 
just, you know, thought he was getting uh, an athlete that was going to be ready to compete at the collegiate level, at the NCAA level, be like top 10 in, in NCAA. And just the guy was whatever, for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. And he really wasn't that good of a runner, but amazing human being. However, he then referred Alfred Kipchamba, who ended up being one of the best distance runners at the University of Portland I ever saw in the early of all time and who came through in the early 2010s to UP. And without that connection prior, you don't know if Alf would have made it to the bluff and been a pilot. So that's what I'm saying when you go out and recruit because you never know what the echo effect will be. And it's really important because sometimes we can't uh, track that in a season or even a couple of seasons, but it has to be maybe a decade or two decades. And that's one of my favorite quotes is from a coach you know, who was asked like, a, uh, by a reporter one day of saying, what uh, what's the what what's the impact you think you'll have on these athletes? And they're asking the reporter was asking for that season, and the coach replied, "Though, well, get back to me in twenty years, and I'll see, and we'll see." You know, and that's really what it comes down to, especially at the high school level, is the important work being done by men and women every day as high school coaches. Sometimes we don't see the fruits of that labor at all. <laughs> but I, you know, but I ran into, I was running the other day in the forest up here in Forest Park in Portland. And I ran into an athlete I worked with in high school. And it, it man, it must have been a long, over 10 years since I worked with this athletes. And you know what? She was still out there running. She was like, oh yeah, you know, it's great. I run like half marathons now and marathons. And you just really taught me how to love, you know, running and the sport. And the irony was, this was a young woman who was like viewed herself as a long jumper sprinter 400 meter was like <laughs> the longest. And I got her to do like one 800 and she hated it, but she was pretty good at it. But she was like, no, I just, I'm a sprinter. But for whatever reason that stuck in her mind that she could kind of be good at a distance event. And now recreationally as a young adult, she's electing on her own to train for and run half marathons and marathons. And I was just like, that's awesome. <laughs> like, I was like, you are awesome. You know, and, and it's tough because we can't see that for so long as a high school coach, but it happens. And anyone who's coached high school long enough has seen it happen. And I think that's the currency we all traffic in is that lifelong enthusiasm and identification as a athlete or as a runner and why we do and why high school coaches do the work they do at the level they do you know, despite the lack of immediate rewards, because the long-term rewards are far greater. Yeah. And, you know, it's cliche to say that in, in the sense that like, oh, come back to me in 20 years, but it's so true. Right. I mean, I mean, this weekend I'm having dinner with two kids I coached in high school, um, one of which I haven't seen in a while. And that's, that's the, the kind of, you know, bond or the one kind of creation you want to want to make is that, Again, you're ingrating good habits and patterns. And if you can turn someone into having a, you know, putting an importance of running or health or lifestyle into their life as they grow old and get, you know, and develop, it's, it's huge, right? Because then you're impacting them for a lifetime and it's not just, you know, for these four years or a couple of years during high school. So I think that's, Again, just kind of refocusing the the goal a little bit, and it's not to say that shooting for state titles or whatever have you isn't a worthy goal. It teaches a lot of things, but it's you do that in a way that is similar to what we talked about earlier: is creating a culture that 
you know, values competing. And then I think a lot of times that takes the rest takes care of itself. And, um, yeah, I think that's important. I think if I went back to training for one last thing in terms of what I would look at is I think at the time, you know, in the high school schedule, you raced, you raced a lot. Um, and I'm not sure you could do anything about that without changing the dynamics of racing, but, or the, the, uh, powers to be at the state, uh, you know, at the state level. But I think like at the time, I almost saw that as a negative in the sense that, oh, we race all the time. Like this takes away from training. How are we going to fit in this, this, and this? Mm -hmm. And, And now I think I would see it as an opportunity to like hone the skill of racing. Right. Oh yeah. Huge. Yeah. I'm in the same camp with you as well. Like that old, oh, we over race. We race so much in high school. No, 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 no. You remember we learn best by doing. And so if you get to get a, go to competitions and meets with frequency, you can learn more. And that's the whole point of the exercise. Yeah, um, exactly. And I think the other part of it is put your athletes in different positions in racing. That's something that I definitely do differently. You know, we, we've talked about before how when, when you have uh, an athlete who comes to you from high school who is always used to leading races, a lot of times they struggle in college because all they know, all they have at tactics wise in their back pocket is one tactic, leading the race, right? And they're only comfortable when they're leading the race or setting things because they have control. And once you take that control away from them and they're in 15th place or 30th or a hundredth place, and they have no control except over what the, over themselves, then a lot of times their performance, you know, um, drops and they kind of hit a, hit a rough spot because not because they're not fit, but because they don't feel comfortable racing because they're one tactic they can't use. So I think or even if it's someone good who's going to dominate a field in high school, you try different tactics. You try getting them used to different things of, hey, sit, sit for this first mile, help, you know, Johnny, our number two or number three man get through the race and then worry about it. You know, I do, I do that on the college level. I mean, at our, for the past oh, two years at our opening meet, it's a local meet at Rice University. I had our top guy, Brian Barraza, run with our second guy. And I said, hey, you run with him all the way up until it's maybe a half mile to go in a, in a 6K race, right? What's the point of that? To make Brian look bad? No, it helps Brian engage with his teammates, right? It helps him teach his, his, our second man something and help pull him along to help see what he's actually capable of. And it gets Brian used to being not in control of the race and in the middle or in the, you know, front part of the pack, but not having control of it all. And I think that's an invaluable lesson that you can teach someone. So use races as opportunity to work on tactics, sometimes sending them out fast, sometimes having, holding them back and, um, you know, having them go out slow. So it just depends, you know, one final thought on this. I remember my high school coach once, um, on the starting line, put me in the second row of our, of our starting line, right? When our starting bo- box, you have three in front, three in the next, and maybe one in the, one behind that. He put me in that second row so that I couldn't get out fast. And then I'd be stuck in the middle of this pack with this hundred person race and have to work my way through. And I think at the time I was kind of upset. I'm like, I'm the number one guy. Why am I starting in the second row? 
but it taught me a lot of things and it taught me not how not to panic. And it just so happened that later in that year, um, at our regional championship, standing on the starting line, our, uh, second, our number two man, the gun goes off. Starting line is muddy. He falls and slips, takes me down with him. And all of a sudden we're not starting in the middle. We're starting at the very back of the regional championship to qualify <laughs> for us to state. Yeah. And the only way we made that, I remember thinking during that, the only race, the way I made this, made it through is I was like, all right, I've been here before. I just got to slowly work through this. Like I got to work up. And, it, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where if I didn't have that experience, I probably would have freaked out even more and been like, holy crap, we're not going to make it a state. Holy crap. Like I'm, I'm supposed to be, you know, one of the top guys in state. I'm not going to make it. Our teams, we're going to let them down, et cetera, spiral and, and, you know, it be a horrible uh, performance. Well, this is a common pitfall too. I remember being so obsessed with this idea of improvement as a high school coach early in my career. And now I'd go back and I'd work in exactly on what your coach worked on there with you, Steve, which is development and what's the difference between improvement and development improvement is being obsessed with did i pr did i get faster did i keep my status or did that the high school athlete my you know did they keep their status every single race and that's really easy to slip into is like did we get faster every race or did we place high every race and then you become very shallow and very result-oriented and success oriented solely. And so, yeah, you do get those kids that then matriculate to college because they're used to being in the front and winning all the time. And now they're in 60th and duking it out as hard as they can. And, you know, fourth woman on the team, they just don't know how to cope. And if you do them a disservice by being solely improvement oriented, there's going to be a lot of um, dark times and tough times down the road. But if you instead reframe it as development oriented, then yes, you can see improvement along the path and along the way. But just because you didn't run a PR this race compared to last race, or you didn't place in this, uh, you know, the podium, um, at this very difficult invitational as compared to the easy dual meet means that it's okay as long as, again, coming back to being competitive focused and leaning into competition that you ex were aware of and expressed the most competitive incarnation you could of your ability that day in that moment when things got tough. And it's tough to get people to buy into it because, again, <clears throat> the improvement has a very precise mathematics to it. You got faster, you PR'd congrats. It's the best you've ever done this. But development means maybe something, some adversity, unplanned adversity happens. You made a decision in the moment and coped and created a solution that led you to the outcome you, you, you had. But it's that decision. And that's what you as a high school coach and what I would do is I champion the decision making, champion competitive decision making when I saw it or when it happened. And I'll never forget this year, just, you know, again, hearing that debrief with Andy Truard and Mike Smith at Peyton Jordan after Truard ran the NCAA leading 5k time of 1320. Mike's first question was, take me through the decisions you made. That was it. Not good job. Not, oh man, you ran really fast. So you're leading the NCAA time. Now is all I was expecting. No, take me through the decisions because that's really what we're trying to set the athletes up to do come race day because we don't get timeouts, right? In track and cross country. So we have to 
build up the decision profile and decision um, capacity of every athlete as best we can by championing when they do make good decisions and then by debriefing and giving them pointers but not um, berating them or um, chastising them when maybe they make don't make as effective decisions because again at the high school level first and foremost we should and are there to teach and teaching happens the teachable moment often happens when mistakes are made, not when the paper's turned in and it's perfect. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at training or coaching from a decision-making standpoint, I think it clears things up because, as again, we talked about ingraining habits and uh, all that really is is looking at that decision-making process and, like, ingraining good decisions or learning from decisions that, you know, didn't work out. And what happens is if we don't have any decisions that don't work out, right, or we aren't exposed to them, then like we never create those learning opportunities. And I think if you look at, if you look at what we were talking about earlier in terms of, oh, well, the biggest thing for a high school kid is to create status and perform well and win as many things as you can, then what happens is like you've, eliminated a lot of the decision-making opportunities from his, um, you know, from his plate, right? Because he only has to deal with situations which are relatively certain, right? Am I going to win this, you know, regional or this county race? All right, there's no competition, yes. So I think changing that dynamic a little bit helps athletes not only in their life, but also at the at the next level, because if I was to look at it from a college coach and look back, okay, how, what is important when these athletes step into my office as freshmen and I'm trying to mold and guide them to achieve their goals, I think it's that, that factor right there is the decision making uh, process. And then also being able to deal with like failure and success. The one other thing that I point out as a college coach is I'd also, you know, try and make sure that the athletes were as coachable as possible. What does that mean? A lot of times when you have a really good athlete and they've had success with their high school coach or they come from a good program, sometimes they just, it's natural tendency, it's their first coach, they just think that, like, this is the only way to do it right? And then they come to college and sometimes it's done a little bit differently. And sometimes they come join us for post-collegiates and it's done a little bit differently, right? And it's not necessarily not necessary that different is bad, but sometimes athletes hold themselves back because they think they found the holy grail of training methods in high school and this is why they're fast and they need to continue to be this so it dampens down their coachability and that ties back to that tony parker spurs um article that we mentioned at the at the top of this podcast but if you can create athletes who are are, are or you can help mold athletes into being extremely coachable regardless then i think that benefits them uh for the long term I think just touching on that on quick tangent on coachability, what I've noticed a lot of that coachability or lack of coachability comes from insecurity. The more insecure a person is or more insecure an athlete is, and even sometimes the more insecure coaches, the less coachable, the less apt they are to feedback uh, or um, critique or 
awareness about a, a potentially a more potent way or manner to conduct themselves and also to to build themselves up. And that, you know, I see that a lot with post-collegiate athletes I work with now. They'll have success. They'll come here and I'll be like, okay, hey, that's great that you worried about mileage and tempo runs in college. You're not fast. You don't run well. You don't move well. You're not, you're good. You had success in college. But at this level, to play the game at the level you want, we need to shore up those liabilities. We need to like address these energy leaks. And it seems very counterintuitive. And even as a, a you know, a distance coach myself, by necessity, I had to get an education in this to be able to um, create a space for these athletes to be competitive at this level because they can run all the mileage and tempo runs they want in the world and they can get the metabolism, you know, and blood works just so. But if fundamentally they can't sprint, if fundamentally they can't move well, it's going to eventually be a dead end. And I don't want a dead end. You, What you want is want years and years and years of inconsistent, deliberate, uninterrupted training. But most athletes come out of the injury cycle having big gaps in their development, having big gaps in exposure. So we have to then by necessity go back and work on these very rudimentary things. It's not bad, but few want to do it. And it's, it's you know, it, it, I'm sure it's very difficult for some athletes to hear this. And it's also very difficult for me because, you know, I don't want to sell them a bridge or put them in a situation where they're not going to actually have the skill set to be competitive at the level they want to be. But we have to do things that are a lot different than they're used to. And I remind people, what got you here won't necessarily get you there. But it takes a very secure person to be able to explore and experiment with, you know, new ways of getting better rather than an insecure person who just kind of sticks with what's familiar and sticks with what kind of got them good here and there. And that's where coachability is key. And so the best thing a high school coach can do is create a degree of security about the um, team environment and also the relationship environment that you have with the, with the athlete to say, look, you won't be penalized for taking risks. You won't be penalized for doing your best. You won't be penalized for not finishing at this level. You won't be penalized for not always running your fastest at every single race, every single season or in every single meet. But you will be, you know, questioned if you shy away from competition. You will be, you know, um, th- there will be a dialogue if you conduct yourself, you know, in a manner that's not aligned with the principles we've set forth. And so creating that language around that culture, that's really important because then you create a very coachable um, cohort of not only athletes, but also assistant coaches, volunteers, parents, et cetera. And getting all those stakeholders together and on the same page is very valuable to helping shepherd everyone to their highest height. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. And also, you know, also it's probably a a good uh, message to probably end on in terms of high school coaching. And if I was to reflect back on it, you know, it's, it's interesting looking and being out of it for 10 years now or so, something like that. Man, we're getting old. Um, but being it out of it for that long and seeing it through different, different lenses, I think that's the important part is what do you see your job as a high school coach? And that kind of guides things, right? Is your job trying to 
you know, get these people to run as fast as they can by the time they're 18? Is your job to win as many state titles as, you know, humanly possible? Or is your job to develop people and to uh, ingrain good habits and patterns of behaviors and like set them up so that from 20 years from now that, you know, if they still enjoy running or exercise or all that good stuff and they're carrying those lessons home, then that kind of whatever that that however you see it kind of guides what you tend to do right and that's no different than what you mentioned at the top in terms of uh, the book principles is that's the whole reason that uh, Ray Dalio uh, wrote that is to give him those guiding principles uh, which govern the decision makings during his investments right and I think as high school coaches our guiding principles um, you know should be there to guide our decision making and my guiding principles now would be slightly different than they were 10 years ago. I would focus less on winning, more on teaching how to race, how to compete, more on ingraining like the habit of running and the enjoyment of running and why it should be a lifelong thing. I would try and incorporate more lessons into things. I would give them more ability to, as John said, move better. Why? Because that doesn't only help them in terms of running, but that helps them in all of sport and all of all of life quite quite frankly so it's like you're setting your setting your athletes up to succeed and giving them um as many avenues and routes to do so instead of locking in on my goal is to have you be the fastest person that you can be and like once you stop step away from it then like that's the only skill you've learned is how, how to be fast or how to lead races or um, whatever other singular skill you've done, done. I think as a high school coach, you go for, for that breadth and depth of skills that you're trying to develop. Amen to that. Amen to that. <laughs> I think that's a great place to end on, Steve. Appreciate it. Sweet. Well, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, throwback for us, our, our recollection and, remembrances of our early days in coaching. And I think one other point to make on there is that I think that a lot of times we get in this habit of thinking, oh, high school coach is the lowest and then college coach and then professional coach. And it's always good to reinforce that coaching is coaching. And there's some things, there's many things that uh, a lot of high school coaches throughout this country do way better than I could ever do. Right. And there's it and same with college, same with pro. And it's not really about what level of athlete you're working with. Some of the best coaches I've ever talked to have actually, well, one is actually a uh, elementary school PE teacher. Right. So I think it's just important to realize that you're coaching people. And yes, the demands change a little bit, but it's not like the people on top hold some magic secret. I think a lot of times, as we mentioned at the beginning, high school coaches sometimes are the ones innovating and pushing that innovation uh, more so than those uh, at the top of the sport. Well, and I'm going to say the top by being working with the fastest in athletes. Because again, just because you work with or don't work with the fastest athlete does not mean you are, it doesn't put a value on your coaching ability. Because I know a lot of coaches who work with very fast athletes who are very fast before them or very fast after them and might not be that diligent of a coach. I know a lot of coaches who work with, you know, not as many fast athletes and are amazing. And, 
but high school coaching always has been, always will be the bedrock of athletics in America, development of young men and women, shaping hearts and mind of sport and initiation, and then also participation in sport for a long, long, long time. It's why I've always considered every year going back to the high school ranks because it's where the most important work is being done and the most vital work is being done because without that foundation and without that orientation that high school coaches afford, we wouldn't have a sport at the competitive repute we do at the collegiate level and post-collegiate level. So just as a thank you to everyone for the work you do who are currently in the high school um, field and level and everyone who's been there and any, anyone considering going back, like it's a great space to be in. There's a lot of challenges for sure, but you know, that's the challenges is what makes the environment and makes the outcomes and makes what success you do enjoy all the more colorful and memorable. Amen. And if you're looking to make your life a little bit easier, don't forget to check out Final Search. So until next time, check us out on highperformancewest.com. A lot of cool things. Sign up for our newsletter uh, there if you haven't yet. Um, you'll get some cool stuff for this. And then also consider checking out our uh, scholar programs and uh, courses and all that good stuff. It supports, uh, supports what we do and supports everything uh, surrounding us. So thanks a lot everybody for listening. Until next time.